0: Welcome to What We Leave, a study of four faith legacies. In this five-session Bible study, we're looking at the faith legacy of you. We'll dive into the portion of Jesus' ministry that is the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a powerful passage that gives us a blueprint to live out our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. As with all of our studies, we'd love to walk alongside you and we want you to know if you need prayer or just have questions. We'd be honored to connect with you feel free to contact us at women at rpcstaff.org. Now get comfy, grab a pen and paper, and get ready to join our teacher, Chris Murphy, as she walks us through the faith legacy of you. Heavenly Father, um, man, it's cool to see people. Huh, it's cool to see people again. Um, Lord, I thank you so much that we get to come to this place and we get to open your word and we get to learn um, about you. We get to learn about how much you love us. And that you love us so much that you left us words to live by. You love us so much that you sent your son to live and to die and to resurrect on our behalf, Lord, because we could never, never attain that without him. And so thank you. And so today I just pray that we are um, aware in this moment that you are here, um, that we are fully aware that you have a plan for each of us and that you are creating something in us. And so God, we want to step into that. So thank you so much that you love us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Did anybody hear a weird sound when I was praying? (laughs) Okay, cool, that's cool. All right, good, all right. Um, All right, focus. My name is Chris. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. Um, We are gonna cover the faith legacy of who? You. Who's pumped? If you've been doing the other legacies, we've covered some of the Old Testament dudes, We, we covered Peter, but now we're gonna finish this whole series up with your legacy, with what Jesus, him only, his own Jesus lips, what he has to say about the way you live your life. And so the power in the words that we're gonna cover over the next five weeks are, are just, they're palpable, man. I'm excited about it. And I think you will be too. Um, at the beginning of this week, if you've registered for this study, you got an email from me. You may have ignored it, but I'm telling you, I sent you one. And the email said, I want you to consider a sentence. It's something that God's kind of put in my brain for the last couple of weeks as we've been getting ready for this. And and I want you to think about this. I asked you to remember this sentence and think about how you would answer it, okay? The sentence is this, I am becoming blank. I am becoming blank. You know, as I thought about that sentence, because honestly, when I wrote um, this particular study about our legacy, the faith legacy that we're developing and that we're gonna leave, I just kind of kept coming up with that word becoming because I feel like that's what God is telling us. I am creating something in you. You are becoming something. And so for me, I was like, man, I wanna write this down. I wanna write it at the top of every page because when I wanna ask myself every day, Chris, what are you becoming today? What are you allowing God to build today? Um, and so I hope you'll do the same. As I was thinking through the idea of becoming, obviously the first thing I thought about was Plato, right? Everybody thinks of Plato, right? When you think of your legacy through Jesus Christ, our savior, amen, right? No, um, maybe not. Plato. Hey, could hey could somebody jump backstage and see what's happening? Okay, cool. Again, don't you love when we're not recording it? It is just wheels flying off everywhere. Oh, Oh, it's on the roof. Okay, all right. Sounds good. Okay. Welcome to Rock Point Church. You were, you are focused on me because I'm so loud in my Play-Doh. Okay, sure you were. Um, all right, here's the thing. The Play-Doh. Okay, here's what I was thinking about. I had to call a friend because my kids are so old now that all the Play-Doh that I have is all dry. <laughs> so it didn't even work. But I had to call my buddy who has littles running around and, and I said, bring me some Play-Doh because here's what I was thinking. If we're becoming something, right, like we are basically stinky Play-Doh or clay, you know, we are moldable, we are changeable. And, and I just kept thinking, like, I want to be um, in the hands of God and I want him to, be, to create something in me. I want him to transform me from this into whatever he wants me to be. You know, And so for me, that was what I kept thinking about. Am I pliable? Am I willing? Am I available to him? Or am I trying to control the deal? Am I trying to become who Chris wants to be? Or am I letting God take hold of me and just turn me into whatever he wants me to be? Um, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that, but that's how I feel like we need to start this journey is, is God, who am I becoming because of who you're molding me and transforming me into? The beauty is... We've covered so many cool faith legacies, but here's what I love. We are gonna read Jesus's like red letter words out of his Jesus mouth about you, about me, about what he expects of you and me and about how we are to live and be available for him to create something in us. I'm so pumped about that, right? Well, I mentioned we're gonna spend our time in in the book of Matthew. So if you wanna flip there, you can. Chapter five is where we're gonna start. Here's what we're going to do. I'm today, okay, today is always the day where I kind of give you a little introduction, little background context kind of thing, okay? So we're going to do that. What we're going to do is first, I'm going to kind of give you a little introduction to Matthew and then a little bit about the gospels, okay? And then I'm going to give you an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we're going to spend the next five weeks. And that's going to be in Matthew chapters five through seven. That's the whole of where you'll be, okay? So intro to Matthew, intro to the Sermon on the Mount, and then we're going to look at some of the key themes that you're going to see coming up as we go through this for the next five, um, five sessions. And then the last thing we're going to cover before we close, and I kind of give you a little challenge, is we're going to cover the starting point of this sermon. You see, it's always so interesting, right? When you, when you see Jesus's words, that's why they're in red, when you see him begin to speak, I was fascinated with this particular sermon because of the way he started it. And so we're going to look at that today before we um, go into our discussion group. So... With that, open up your Bible if you'd like. If not, I'm gonna read some things to you. But Matthew chapter five, and that's in the New Testament, okay? I mentioned um, Matthew is a gospel. It's in the New Testament. It's actually the first book of the New Testament. And you'll notice if you're, I don't know how familiar you are with your Bible, but I will tell you this, there's, there's this like little gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Usually it's just like one blank page, but that one blank page represents 400 years. 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Okay, so just to kind of get your mind around that a little bit, the Gospels. When I was new to Bible study, you know, I'd always hear people talk about the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of whatever, and I didn't really understand what's the difference of, of, of the Gospels versus the letters or the epistles or the wisdom books and all the things. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little primer real fast before we get into Matthew, okay? The Gospels, there's four of them. There's four of them, and at beginning, uh, they're at the beginning of the New Testament, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, those are the story of Jesus, okay? Those are the four accounts of the firsthand story of Jesus. Cool thing about, about um, the Gospels, I always kind of wondered when I was early on in studying the Bible, I'm like, well, why, do we, why did we take four of them? You know, why couldn't we just do it once? Four different storytellers are gonna tell the same story. Think of it that way. When you look at the gospels, think of it as these are these are told by four different perspectives or points of view, okay? I think about, like, for me, it helps me this way. This is Chris Brain, okay? When I think back to, like, stories and experiences I have in my life. Like I think, I, I don't know, I have no idea why this came to me, but it came to me when I was getting ready for this. I was thinking about when I was a little kid, um, I had a horse, we had a bunch of land, we'd run around, you know, country kids and ride our horses and everything bareback, so fun. I was probably barefoot at the time, really super smart, very very brainy child. But where we I was riding my horse and it was kind of muddy and kind of rainy and I was out there doing my thing and, and she slipped and she fell. Okay. And so for me, I don't even remember how old I I was. I want to say I was little, like 10, nine, something like that. I remember it like this, slow motion, you know, we're taking this right turn and the mud's flying up and the dace. my horse is like rolling around on the ground. I look over and, ah, she's going to roll on me and all this stuff. And then I jump up and I hop to my mom. You know, I have this whole like memory of the story. But then if you ask my mom, she'd be like, yeah, I mean, she slipped and you fell off. And you know, you, you hopped around and you cried and you made a big deal out of it, but it was really fine. <laughs> like, wait, what? Like, we saw the same thing, but we saw different perspectives, didn't we? We saw it slightly differently. And so I think while it's the same stories that we see um, the, the, the gospels telling, a lot of them are the same, they are also told from different perspectives. Let me give you an example, okay? John, the gospel of John the stories that you're gonna see and the accounts that you're gonna see in John are gonna point to the fact that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. In fact, he even begins with the very first verse. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He starts and sets the tone saying, this man was fully God, okay? And so John writes from that perspective, the things you're gonna see, he's gonna bring out that point of view. The gospel of Luke He's going to write from the perspective that Jesus was the son of man. And what that means, basically, he's going to tell stories and and recount things and teachings of Jesus that are going to show that, that Jesus is significant for all of mankind, all of the human race. Everyone needs to hear about Jesus, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, but everyone. Okay, So he writes from a slightly different perspective. And then you have Mark, the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark is going to paint a picture of Jesus as a suffering servant. You see, the people were expecting this king, this promised king from the Old Testament. And this is not how they saw a king looking, acting, speaking, performing miracles. The things he was doing were not what they were looking for. And so he's going to present the fact that this sovereign king, this Jesus, was a suffering servant. In fact, Jesus even says, He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then lastly, in Matthew, where we're going to be, the entire point of view that that Matthew speaks from, that he shares from, is that Jesus is the sovereign king. You're going to see a lot of kingdom language. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to watch for the word kingdom. You're going to see it often, okay? And Jesus will speak directly to that about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom is now. Okay, so watch for that. We'll talk about it as we go through. Interestingly, in Matthew, the beginning of Matthew has a legal lineage presented in chapter one, verse one, when it's talking about the birth of Christ, essentially. You see, the lineages that are given are, are important. They matter. Sometimes we're like, oh, just names, 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 names. Well, this one mattered because it was showing his, his king. Um, his kingship, if you will. The lineage through David, through King David, it shows that lineage. Interestingly, um, I mentioned that we have Luke and he talks about how the significance of, of Jesus as a son of man, he starts his gospel with a lineage also, but it's a physical lim- li- lineage. It's different. If you go look, it, it's, it's slightly different. Same truth, but written from a different perspective, a different point of view, trying to make a different point, Okay. So there's your Gospels background, a little bit of that, but Matthew specifically, the book that we're going to spend all our time in, there's, this, there's a few things I feel like as we approach this, we need to understand what Matthew is not, okay? What the book, the Gospel of Matthew is not. It's three things. One, Matthew is not a congregational letter, Okay? It is not a congregational letter. What do I mean by that? Um, Later in the New Testament, there's a bunch of, we call them epistles. That's a fancy churchy word for letter. There's a bunch of letters that are written specifically to specific people, individuals, specifically to churches. Some of them are are passed around to different churches, but they have an intended audience. They're written to someone, but for all of us. That's what letters are, okay? But Matthew is written, uh, it's a history Okay, of Jesus from birth to resurrection. And it's for all people, all people, not just a specific person that the letter is written about, okay? All people. So Matthew is not a congregational letter. What else is Matthew not? It is not a comprehensive biography. I needed to hear that. Like, I I heard that way too late in life. I was always like, but wait, there's like a lot of gaps. Like, wait, why did he say this and he didn't say this and why? Because listen, guys, he lived 33 years and I can't imagine how full and rich that ministry was in those years that he was doing ministry. We don't have every detail. It's not a comprehensive biography of the life of Jesus, but rather it's Matthew choosing what to provide for us in order for us to understand that Jesus is sovereign king. Let me give you an example, something I didn't know. The entire book of Matthew is centered around five sermons that Jesus gives. Did you know this? And so five different sermons that Jesus gives, Matthew arranges everything around these five sections. And in fact, the first um, sermon that he gives is is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And that's where we're gonna be. So the first four chapters of Matthew are basically introduction to Jesus's life. It's telling us about when he was born. It's telling us about how he grew up and how all of a sudden he's entering into um, ministry, the baptism of with, with John the Baptist, how God spoke over him, the temptation, how he's starting to pick his dudes, right? He's starting to choose his guys. They're gonna hang with him. And then the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, okay? Five different um, distinct teaching sections you see in the book of Matthew. Well, along with that, it's important to realize it's not a chronological history, okay? It's not a chronological history, meaning that, that because it's arranged around these five distinct teachings, some things are moved around a little bit. Sometimes you'll see scholars and, and, and smart Bible people say, well, yeah, but in Luke, it happened here, and in Matthew, it happened here, and okay, cool, that's all right. Because it's not like Matthew started it with, you know, um, the beginning and then the end. It's not how that worked. It moved, he moved things around to accommodate these five different teachings, okay? Something interesting, each teaching that you're going to see, if you go and read the rest of Matthew, each time Jesus has one of these big teaching moments, it ends with a phrase like this, when Jesus had finished, dot, dot, dot. When Jesus had finished this teaching, when Jesus had finished speaking these words, when Jesus had finished his instruction, every one of them ends with that. And you know what I thought of? We need to know that that matters. You know why? Because it's basically what we talk about in here. We don't want to put this on a bookshelf and forget to live it out. And so I challenge you as you go through this and we go through five through seven of Matthew, I want you to ask yourself, when Jesus finished teaching Chris, what? What? What am I going to do with it? Well, that's a good little brief primer of Matthew. So you know what we're stepping into, okay? It's written from Matthew's perspective. He's one of Jesus's 12 dudes, okay? He's the one who wrote it. We think, actually, did you know all the gospels are technically anonymous authors? Yeah, right, whatever. But they're named after who we think probably wrote them. So just so that you know, it's coming from his firsthand account, All right, Matthew. So now let's look at Sermon on the Mount. Like I mentioned, this is where we're gonna spend all of our time, okay? Sermon on the Mount starts in chapter five of Matthew, goes through chapter seven. John Stott, I, I, I like looking at his commentaries. He said this about the Sermon on the Mount and it stuck with me. He said that this is the closest thing that Jesus ever gets to preaching a manifesto. How about that, huh? And of course, if you're like me, I had to immediately Google what is the definition for manifesto? Because I'm like, that sounds really fancy, but what does that even mean? A manifesto is this. It's a public declaration of intentions, of motives, of views, or of aims. It's this public declaration, okay? Which I love because in that moment, now you have witnesses, okay? Okay. And so this is what we call Jesus's manifesto. He's gonna answer some questions that, that we all ask as believers of Jesus. One is that what does, Jesus, what does a Jesus follower really believe? He's gonna answer that. And then how do we live that out as a result? He's gonna answer that, okay? That's what we're gonna get when we go through this Sermon on the Mount. It's 111 verses. It's the fullest exposition of Jesus ever recorded in any of the gospels, Okay. It's the most famous of his speeches. It's going to expand on the laws of Moses. If you did Moses with us, you're going to be like, oh, great, more of that. Yep, he's going to talk about a lot of that. He's going to expand on that. He's going to tell us how to pray. He's going to tell us how to do all sorts of stuff if we're believers of Jesus Christ. It's similar to a passage in Luke 6. You may be familiar with this. In Luke 6, there's a passage that's Jesus speaking. Um, There's really kind of two views. There's one more that's a little a little on the on the fringes, but the two views about this are basically that these are so similar, these two speeches, that the first view is that they are actually the same speech, but that the authors have highlighted different parts of it. You know, like I told you before, same story, different highlight, different perspective. Okay, the other view is that these are actually different speeches, but that Jesus used a lot of his same material when he talked to different groups of people, which is highly likely. You know, he didn't need new content, pretty simple. Gospel's pretty simple, so we don't really know. But if you see Luke 6, you can know some people think it's the same one. Some people don't think it's the same. A couple of things about this Sermon on the Mount that we're going to teach. You'll see in the very first few verses, this is Jesus climbing up a hill and sitting down, taking a breath, inviting his people up, and he's just going to talk. And I love that because it, to me, it's just that just felt so casual and so calm and so truthful and so real and non-rehearsed, right? Like I just can imagine, can you just imagine it? Like Jesus didn't stand up behind a fancy podium on a big platform with lights and music and all that. He just hiked up a hill, had a seat and said, let me tell you about who you are and who God wants to make you into. Um, I love that. He's um, on a hill that's overlooking the Sea of Galilee, if you want to know of some geography-ish kind of things. The posture of him sitting, that was customary for teachers in that day. So that wasn't weird that he had a seat. Um, That's usually the way teachers would teach. The audience, we believe, um, we believe, we know. He was speaking to the disciples, okay? Because you see in um, Matthew 5 that they, they go up the mountain with him. They go up the hill with him. So we know his disciples were there. Here's some things that are kind of uh, curious about this. 12 disciples. We know that Jesus had 12 disciples. Well, he had a lot more than that. Did you know that? Did you know the 12 were just like his main dudes? They were the chosen um, um, close like compadres that he kept with him everywhere. But he had many disciples, many followers. So we don't know technically if it was more than the 12. We, we presume that it probably was. Um, the committed to Jesus, okay? Okay but here's what I find interesting. And you're gonna see this over and over. Jesus is gonna point his Jesus finger at some of the other people that are listening in. You know who else was listening in who wasn't up on the hill sitting with Jesus listening, but rather was milling around just within earshot trying to hear what was happening. You know who that was? It was the curious. You see, at this point, there was folks that were following. When we see that masses were following him and the crowds were getting bigger, they weren't all followers, right? I mean, they were listening. In fact, I always think about this like, how many times, how many times did young Chris hear the message of Jesus Christ and then just go home and, you know, eat his Snickers or whatever? I don't know, a lot of times. There was only one time where I stopped and said, I need that. I want that. But I heard it many times. And so I think there's probably a lot of people that are curious, following, listening. Who knows how many times they've heard him speak and teach? Who knows if life is gonna change for them? And then there's also another group of people who are listening and you know who those guys are? They're the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the E's, the E's guys. These guys, okay, here's what those guys are. They are um, legalistic, Hardcore rule followers, they believe if we do X, Y, Z, then we are righteous before God. That's what they believe. You see, at this time, we're 400 years past the Old Testament. At this time, what's happened is a lot of these um, laws and things that you looked at when we studied Moses have been manipulated and added to and transformed by people into, I have a better report card of being good than you do. Therefore, I'm more righteous than you are. I pray out loud better than you do. Therefore, I'm more righteous than you are. I wear fancier clothes. I'm more righteous. I go to church more. I'm more righteous. I'm going to tithe and I'm going to give, but I'm going to make sure one sees it. Therefore, I'm more righteous. You see where I'm going with this? That's who those guys were. Okay. A lot of them were just hardcore legalistic. They just had everything messed up. So you know what they didn't like? They didn't like Jesus coming and threatening everything that made them righteous. And that's what he did. He was turning everything upside down. Every word he said was upside down to their theology. So they're within earshot as well. And here's how we know over and over, you're gonna see Jesus kind of make reference to these dudes, okay? So watch for it. I'll try to point it out when I see it. Um, so they were probably following at a distance. So you had the committed, you had the curious, and then you had the, the rule follower guys that, that, that do not like Jesus, that they're enemies. And there's this angst and this anger building up, okay? They're all listening. I mentioned before uh, lots of kingdom language in this sermon, lots of kingdom language. In fact, some people call this the King's Sermon. Watch for the word kingdom. Um, Something I think is important for us to remember, Um, and maybe the main reason I usually teach a book, a whole book of the Bible, like from verse one to verse end, is because when we pull something out, there's danger of us forgetting that it was intended to be all together, okay? Let me explain what I mean by that. When we pull five through seven out, this particular speech, we cannot separate it from the cross, okay? This is so important. Don't separate what Jesus is saying with what we know is coming, okay? Because every word he's speaking is in preparation for what he knows is coming at the end of the book. And we can't end it here. We have to remember and keep it in mind all the time. In fact, interestingly, Matthew The book of Matthew begins in chapter one, verse 21 with this. When he's speaking of little baby Jesus, little manger baby Jesus, he says this, he will save his people from their sins. So in the first chapter, Matthew reminds us that we're sinful and we're broken and and there's a disconnect And, and a bunch of speeches and following a bunch of rules ain't gonna fix it, amen? And at the end of Matthew, The very last verse of Matthew, one of my favorite of all the verses, is chapter 28, verse 20. And it's Jesus's words after he's been resurrected and he's looking at his guys and he says, I am with you always to the ends of the age. You see, it begins with sin. It ends with redemption only through Jesus. All this middle part, this stuff we're gonna see, this is not about earning anything before God. This is not about earning salvation. It's simply going to be evidence of what you believe. Evidence, okay? It's critical that we believe that and critical that we understand that because this is also one of the most misunderstood sections of scripture because a lot of people with bad theology will tell you, well, this is where Jesus himself is telling you how to be saved. That's not what he says. The only way we're saved is through Jesus because he's the only one that's truly righteous. You can't do all these things. Aren't you so happy you came? You're like, great, this is gonna be fun, (laughs) I'm going to talk about all the things you can't do. No, you can't achieve a lot of it. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have told us to live this way. But we cannot be perfect. Only Jesus can be perfect. Can I step off my soapbox now? Have I beaten the dead horse enough? Okay, all right, anyway. One of the most misunderstood messages, I mentioned that. Remember that this is an evidence of your faith, not an earning of your salvation, Okay. So key themes, what key themes are we gonna see? You're gonna see all sorts of stuff, but there was two kind of overarching themes that I felt like we need to just kind of have in the back of our mind as we step into it, okay? Two things I saw. First, is that God wants us to have a life that reflects true righteousness. True righteousness, not just a little bit of sprinkling of it, true righteousness. Not artificial or external, in fact, you're going to see, even in your, your homework this next week in chapter 5, verse 20 or so, you're going to see where Jesus is referencing what I mentioned before, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and how they stand up and do all these things that are so fake. They look pretty. They probably sound real good too. Fake. You see, because God knows their heart. And so when we talk about true righteousness, it's like a heart thing. It's not like an outward appearance thing. The thing I found interesting as I was going through this, I thought, you know, God, I, I, sometimes I get all mad about, I get mad on your behalf. You're welcome. I'll, you're welcome. Um, I, I'm like, why, 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 why can't we achieve true righteousness, God? Why, I mean, you love us. You want us to come to you. Why make it so hard, you know? And this is what I found um, over and over that I just kind of kept remembering is that God is, is just, He's a just, righteous God. And here's the beauty of who he is. He's such a good dad that he would never go, you know what? All those things you have done, you are doing, you will do that are sins against me. All those things, I, 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 I'm so just that there's a deserved punishment for those things. I'm not gonna wipe the slate clean because then it makes none of that matter. It makes what Jesus did not matter. See, what had to happen because God is so just is we had to pay the price for all the things we did do and will do, amen? Super fun stuff, right? But here's the thing, here's the beauty. Jesus did it all, every bit of it, paid all of it. And so I think about that when I'm looking at the idea that we want true righteousness, that God loves us so much that he doesn't just wipe the bar clean. What he does instead is he gives us Jesus, amen? So cool, Well, righteousness only is achieved through Christ. So we see that we want to live a life that reflects true righteousness. Well, we have to trust Jesus, okay? You're going to see that. You're going to know that the minute we get into this with him. Well, the second thing, the second theme that I feel like over and over we're seeing God make um, clear through the words of Jesus is that life looks different for believers than it does for the rest of the world. Your life should look different. My life should look different. Even in Matthew 6, 8, he says, don't be like them. You know who he's quoting? He's quoting Moses in Leviticus, who says basically in Leviticus 18, don't be like them. You see, if we look exactly the same as everybody else who, man, I think about this all the time. There's so many people in this world that have no hope. Like if I were to define, you know, what is the difference between a believer and a person that's not a believer? I'm no better. I am just as awful. But you know what I have? I have Jesus. And so you know what I have? I have hope. And I have friends that don't have hope. And that's that to me, if there's anything to live for, it is hope. And so I think about that. Like, I want my life to look different because I have hope. Amen? I have that. Well, I think those are some of the things you're going to see. I'm curious. You may see some things a little differently. But um, those are the things that came up for me as I was looking at Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount to me, to you. And so the starting point. How does he start it? Um, Matthew 5, if you're not there already, I'm going to read some things. We're going to look at, just real briefly, we're going to look at the first few verses, like 1 through like 13 or something, Um, and we're going to look at how he starts this. So you now know the significance of this speech. It's it's huge. So if he's going to start something so significant, how does he begin? Okay, so follow along with me if you have your Bible. Verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain where he sat down, and his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, are hunger, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the beginning. What? I'm sorry, Jesus, what? Like, if I would have been a disciple, I would have had to work on my facial expressions because I mean, half the time I'd be going, I'm sorry, what? I don't understand that. So that's how he begins. Interesting, right? Those are called the Beatitudes. You've probably heard of them before, studied them perhaps Beatitude is basically um, a representation because the word blessed is at the beginning of each one of those very um, interesting descriptions. Blessed means happy or fortunate. Weird. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Happy and fortunate. I'm sorry, I don't understand. You see, I love the theology of Jesus Christ. I love how God flips everything upside down. You read this. I cannot imagine hearing it on that hill, Right? I'm sure people were like, I think he said that wrong. (laughs) He didn't say it wrong. Um, Interestingly, when I started studying this, I started looking through this. I thought the reason he begins, guys, is there's a starting point, and the starting point is in verse three Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Think of these beatitudes. I've never thought of them this way before. Think of them not as independent, specific, eight different people. Not the the person who's poor in spirit, the person who mourns, the person who's meek. Don't think of them as individual people, but rather think of them as a building block, okay? I want you to imagine a staircase and like at the bottom is the biggest stair. So it's the foundation before you're stepping up. And at the bottom, that bottom stair is spiritual poverty, spiritual poverty. It's the poor in spirit. You know what that means? Here's what it means. I am consciously depending on God because I recognize the fact that I am sinful and broken and messed up and cannot approach him. That's what poor in spirit means. You see, it's the basis for everything he's about to teach. Because when you think about the gospel, you have to understand who you are before you can accept who he is and what he did. Amen? We have to be poor in spirit. We have to understand I can't approach him. I've never thought of it that way. Like that blew my mind. We're poor in spirit. The next step, because we are poor in spirit, we recognize that we cannot approach God because of our sinful behavior. We mourn over our sin. And we recognize the need for him, you see? And then once we mourn over our sin and we have this godly sorrow then we humbly submit to God. You see that word meek? That doesn't mean weak. Anyone? <laughs> Does not mean weak. It means humble. It means submissive. We humbly submit to God because we mourn over our sin. And then the next step is that now that we've humbly submitted ourselves to God and we recognize I can't do all this, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Did you have you ever experienced that? Like I think I think this step is one of those things. It's like a spiritual appetite, and, and to me, I think it kind of it comes and goes depending on where I am with the Lord, right? I think He always wants me to be in this, but I don't think I always am. But I do think about this. When I was 15 years old and I accepted Jesus as my Savior in a in a, in a hotel room at ski camp, you know, for Young Life with a bunch of other high school hooligans running around being wild animals, I didn't know that God was going to build in me this desire to know him and read his Bible and all. I thought I got the golden ticket. I'm like, cool, you know, everything's gonna be great now. I'm gonna go to heaven. I'm gonna be happy all the time. It's gonna be awesome. No promises of happy all the time, by the way. However, what I did, I I knew that I had the Holy Spirit in my heart, okay? 15-year-old, kept living a 15-year-old life. It wasn't till I was in my 20s when I started walking through... um, the first big awful life event that I had to deal with as an adult um, when my best friend got cancer and, and and she went to Bible study all the time. And we we talked before about how we were both Christians, but see she was she was living out her desire, her hunger and thirst for righteousness because she was going to study the word, you know? She was spending time in prayer. I wasn't really doing that. I kind of had the golden ticket and I just put it in my pocket, right? Until my friend Kim said, Hey, will you come to Bible study with me? And you don't say no to somebody who's got cancer. Dang it. <laughs> I always told her, I'm like, you are uncool. Like you used the C word on me and she did. And I went and I've never gone back. I've never looked back. And so in that moment, I feel like I was on this stair step where all of a sudden God used the, the tool or the weapon of my, my awesome friend Kim with the big blue eyes that asked me to go to Bible study with her. And in that moment, all of a sudden, I had a hunger and a thirst for God that I never had before. Have you been there? Have you had that? I hope you have. I hope you will because of this. Well, then the next stair step um, was that we then, because we're hunger and thirsting for for God and we're seeking him in his word and through prayer and through godly people and counsel and all those cool things that God gives us, right? That we then show mercy for other people. Why do we do that? Because we recognize the mercy that's been shown to us. You know, I recognize the wreckage that I was, am, will be, And that only God, only God can do something in my life to transform that, to take something and turn it into something incredible for him. Only God can do that. So now I know that. And so I want to be merciful to you. It's not always easy because I'm a human and I'm broken and I'm messed up, amen? But we show mercy. We extend what God has extended for us. The next step, once we're showing mercy, We then develop this pure heart, the pure heart thing. I would say this, remember that this is a continual action. It's a constant process. I think till the last breath we have, we're developing that, right? I want him to create that in me. Do you? I don't want to be who I was when I was 15, We develop pure heart. And then we go on to become peacemakers. Make sure you understand this. That is not a peacekeeper. This is a peacemaker. This is the person that's gonna show the world, I live upside down. I live in a way that is not natural and does not make sense. You know how many times I've had people say to me, just random weird, because I have a microphone. So people hear me all the time, whether they like it or not, right? People will come say something to me. And they're like, I needed that. And I'm like, well, you know what? I don't think I could have been the one to say that. I think only God could have created that, that peacemaker in me. I'm the, only, the only reason I can, I, can, I can stand up here and say, he's given me opportunity to forgive or he's given me opportunity to overlook or all the things is only because of him. It's never because of me. We become peacemakers. And then lastly, the eighth one is that we suffer for Christ. It's not what you wanted to be on top of the stairs, is it? <laughs> Is there anything worth more to suffer for? I I don't think there's anything in this world that I would rather suffer for than him. And we will, okay? Aren't you glad you came? You need more caffeine after this, but it's true. Here's the thing. If anybody's telling you, you accept Jesus and your life will be great and you won't suffer anymore and you'll always be happy. You run, you scream and run, scream. This is a stranger. This is just run away from that person. That is prosperity gospel and it is a lie. And we don't buy that, right? Because we know that sometimes, oftentimes, all the time, the things that are worth it are worth fighting for and we suffer for them sometimes, all the time, right? We suffer for Christ. But here's what I would, I would say. I would say we gladly suffer for Christ's sake. When I suffer for him, it feels a lot different when I suffer for something that, 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 that is not deserving of of suffering for, amen? Like if it's a sin or it's something that I'm hiding from or it's something in the darkness, that suffering feels a lot different than being able to stand up here and say, whatever you wanna say to me, if it's for the sake of Jesus Christ, it's worth it. Whatever you wanna do to me, if it's for the sake of Jesus Christ, it's worth it. Well, that's how Jesus starts the story. He also goes into this thing about being salt and light. And y'all are going to talk about it in your, little, in your little discussion time because he tells us from the beginning before he even starts down the list of this is how you will live as an evidence. He wants us to know who we are. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is who you are. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, these words are for you. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, how beautiful that these words are here for you to see as well, Right? Maybe this is the moment he draws you to him. Maybe this is the moment he reminds you that there are more things to live for than what you're living for now. Well, I'm gonna close um, with this, with a challenge. Uh, Over the next five weeks, I want you to post that sentence, I am becoming blank. I want you to write it somewhere you're gonna see it or I want you to put it on your homework pages. I don't know, put it somewhere where you're constantly asking yourself and asking God, who am I becoming? Because girls, girls, Every single day we're becoming someone or something. We're growing closer to someone or something. Who is it? What is it? I am becoming, before you walk out of here and you don't have to write any of this down, I just want you to hear these words. You know, as I was thinking through finishing that sentence, I was overwhelmed with the thought that God speaks to this in the Bible over and over and over. And just, I don't even know a lot of Bible. I just know some of the Bible things. And these things came to me. Like, it was like God just going, this is what I want you to hear about who you are becoming in me. So will you listen to these words? And I want you to know, I'm going to send out a little list. I've already been asked. Um, I've got scripture references for every one of them, okay? But I want you to hear this. And I want you to hear it as as a personal love letter from your savior into your ears in this moment not dependent on how many checkboxes you check, not dependent on how many times you come to Bible study or church or, or do good things or, or stand up and pray fancy-like or post a verse on Instagram or whatever, but because of who he is, not anything you did, okay? I am becoming renewed in thoughts and motives and desires and hopes and dreams and satisfaction, I am becoming a new creation. I am becoming a joy peddler. I'm becoming cleansed from the past, from the present, from the future, sins. I am becoming a new self. I am becoming purified and refined, often by fire, but never without purpose. I am becoming new breath from old dry bones. Anybody? I am becoming new wine that's too good to be slurped or spilled. I am becoming a new storyteller. Running back to town to say this is who I was and this is what he did. I am becoming a crown wearer, not a pit dweller. I am becoming a heart transplant recipient from stone to living flesh. I am becoming knowledgeable and wise. I am becoming a God follower I am becoming a treasure finder. I am becoming free. I am becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can claim all these things every day, new. Then that's just some of them. You know, it's just the ones that I could remember. Jesus ends his sermon with when Jesus had finished this sermon, dot, dot, dot. What are we going to do with all this? Will you meet him up on the hill? Will you make his manifesto your manifesto? Will you let him mold you and transform you and create a legacy of becoming more like Jesus? I'm so excited that we get to read these words together. Let's let him form something really super cool for us and show the world that we are different because of him, okay? Will you pray with me? Father, um, you love us so much that you want to Create something new. You love us so much. You want to take the old and make it new. You want to love us so much. You want to transform us. Man, you love us. You love us so much that you sent your son. The only answer for all the damage we did, do, and will do. And you sent him to die for us. And not just die for us. You sent him to hang on a cross and carry every sin. Every sin. And Father, it's overwhelming to us, and I pray that none of us lose sight of the fact that that's how much you love us. We can't even understand it, God, but we thank you for it. And so in this moment, I pray that each of us comes to know you in a deeper way because we know what you have for us. Thank you that you care enough. God, we wanna be a light. We don't wanna be a dark. (laughs) Show us how to do it. And we just um, thank you for all of these things, all of this time, and your word, in your son's name, amen.